Welcome to the podcast where we track down Australian war veterans, have a chat with them and hear their stories. I'm Alex Lloyd and this is Life on the Line. They were building positions in there if for a fight. happened to us, by the time anyone got to us, I think it was chaos. the weather was so bad, there would be no to run boots full of blood. And the next thing I hear was alarms screaming. Chances were very, very slick. The soldiers didn't want to go into the ambushes, so they'd send the kids in first. And so he was sent in first into an ambush and he got shot in the stomach. It was very hard for me, very hard for my family. And the pain burst. Proud of the crew, proud like of what I've achieved and what I'm doing. The volunteer for service was in effect to put your life on the line. Today's bonus episode is a bit different to normal. We at Thistle Productions often get asked who we are, what our background is, and why are we the ones to be doing this podcast. To answer those questions succinctly, we first came together in 2010 to work on a small veterans film project, and that quickly grew wildly out of control. And since then, we just haven't stopped. That first project is called For School and Country. This miniseries chronicles the lives and service of 12 World War II veterans who were also schoolmates. The documentary premiered at their old school, Knox Grammar in Sydney, on 5 May 2015. Three years on from the launch, the original crew behind the series, all of us old Knox boys ourselves, got together for a bit of a nostalgic chat. Today's podcast gives you a bit more insight into the team behind Life on the Line. Enjoy. Welcome to today's bonus episode of Life on the Line. I'm Alex Lloyd, and I'm with the original Thistle Productions crew today as we celebrate three years from the release of our documentary miniseries for School and Country. I'm here with Angus Horden. Hi, Angus. Hi, Alex. I'm also here with Thomas Kay. Hi, Tom. Hi, mate. And making his debut on the podcast, Rohan Viswalingam. G'day, Rohan. Hey, good evening. So it's uh, great to be back with the band and all here and reminisce. And uh, to kick off, let's go back right to the beginning. Angus, how the heck did this all start? It was funny how this started. And like many good things in life, it had a very small beginning. I was at our school Anzac Day service in 2010. And I was with my dad and my son. And as usual, my dad was talking to everyone else except to us. And... On my left was a very quiet, reserved gentleman, uh, Richard Miles. And Richard was holding the order of service. And the order of service had a list of the old boys that had died at Knox during war service. And there's a list of 68 boys there. And he's pointing at these names. And I just said, oh, did you know that guy? And he explains to me that he went to Knox and left in 1939 and There was something like 52 boys in the year, but 48 uh, served, of which 11 were killed. And then he goes on and starts telling me this terrible guilt that he feels because just before the war, he was playing tennis uh, just up the road in Wurunga with three other guys. So his four boys, all in their whites, uh, playing a game of doubles tennis quite innocently. And he turns to me and he said, you know, I'm the only survivor of that tennis game. And this is something that's lived with me all my life. And look, I was very moved by that. And I said to him, well, we'll make sure we tell their story. And we couldn't obviously have the dead come back and talk, but we could listen to Richard and listen to Richard's mates who were still now in their twilight years, but many of them were ready to talk. And we were just sort of at the right place at the right time with the right message. And 
lo and behold, I'm, I'm sitting back and suddenly the headmaster gets up and he starts speaking and um, headmaster John Weeks says, what you do not value will not be valued. And I'm just thinking to myself, listen to what the headmaster's saying. I've just listened to what this dear man, Richard Miles, has said about his fallen mates. And I'm, I'm terribly moved by it. And I decide then and there that we'll do something about it. And, and it takes a bit of time to sort of build up its momentum. I go to the school. Um, I ask the history department. And there's this lovely guy called John Diamond. And um, he lines me up with Carl James. And then I say to him, look, I need to get some help. Are there any good guys that you know from school? And then he introduces me to you, Alex. Yeah, John Diamond was my ancient history and history extension teacher at school and just came at me with this, oh, I've got this uh, veterans project you might be interested in. So I remember I'd done a documentary on the school cadet corps 80 year anniversary. So I came along and met you and brought you this DVD of my very, very limited experience with filming and documentaries and anything like that. But I recall we got on well and thought, oh, let's just sort of start this and see where it goes. It was a good gig to a uni student who had nothing else to do with their spare time. And I remember we were in your office in the summer of, I think it was December 2010, going through who we should be speaking to. And I knew none of these names and none of these stories, but I wanted to make the point that we didn't even pick these veterans. I know your father is one of them, but this list wasn't ours. Someone wrote it for us. Yeah, look, that, that's a wonderful point. And, and I was very mindful there were so many wonderful men to interview and so many incredible stories to tell. And I didn't want to be put in the position that I was picking them because, well, I mean, it just wasn't right. So I went to Ian McPherson. He was the ex-president of the old boys, so he knew everyone. And um, so I said to Ian, how about you get together with Richard Miles? And the two of them contacted a whole bunch of veterans. Basically, Ian came back with the list of 12. Look, my dad was on the list, and I was very glad that he was on the list because he actually had a great story, and I knew it intimately. But I didn't want to actually pick him, and I was um, glad that Ian obviously picked him. And therefore, we had this list, and we started interviewing these guys. And what was beautiful about these men is that they didn't want to tell their story but as I explained to them, it was critical that they speak on behalf of their fallen mates. And therefore, they saw it as their duty of actually serving their mates. And hence, they all took it incredibly seriously. And Alex, look, you and I interviewed them all. And, and I just loved talking to them. And we had many good interviews. I, I, I certainly, I mean, do you remember that first one that we had with Ted Carter? Yeah, that worried me about the entire project. I... <laughs> Bless the late Ted Carter, he had an incredible story, which I'll let you recap, but it was probably, from my point of view, I, you were the interviewer, I was the cameraman, and I was going along to most of these interviews blind. I wasn't doing the background. I was more thinking of production and where can we take this and that. You were bringing out the content, and then I was listening to this first interview unfold, and there is an amazing story there, but trying to get it out of Ted was uh, memorable, wouldn't you say? The Ted Carter interview was our first, was a funny one. Ted was living up in Tamworth and he said, look, I don't come down to Sydney. You've got to come up and see me. And I, and I said to Alex, look, I, I just, we've got 12 people here to interview. I'd like to go up and see him, but you know, it's a bit of a logistics thing to get up all the equipment up to Tamworth. Let's get to him later. And like, lo and behold, I get a call from the guy 
literally a couple of weeks later saying, I'm coming down for a special Tobruk anniversary service. Um, if you want to talk to me, uh, you can do that. So I said to him, great, how do you want to do it? He said, well, I'm going to be on, and he's calling me from Urunga, so uh, he's already down here and there's no no warning. And I'm actually on a plane to go to the Philippines to help with the filming of the project the next day. So I'm supposed to be at home packing. And I ring Alex and he's at work and we weren't even prepared for this, but he drops what he's doing, you know, we meet up and and with Ted, Ted says, well, look, I'm going to be on the 1220 train from Hornsby going into the city. I'll be in the fifth carriage, meet me there. So I go to the train station and no one steps out. No one's even at the front of the train. And I'm thinking, shit, I better just get on this carriage in case the guy's actually there. So I get on the carriage <laughs> and I'm thinking, where would he be, up or down? I'll go up. I go upstairs and I take a couple of stairs to, steps up to the top and I start looking at people. I'm eyeballing these guys and this, and, and this elderly gentleman looks at me and I look at him and he just nods. And, and I went and sat down to him and that was Ted Carter. And he didn't say much. He was a man of few words. His family had testified to that. So we go into town and... Um, and this is just the two of you. I'm not helping you at this stage. I'm going to meet you at the office after. Yeah, and, and, and I've got my video camera. In fact, it's the first video that we actually shoot of the whole production where I get this camera out and Ted's walking around the cenotaph at Martin Place and he's talking to his mate. So I'm just leaving him and I'm just sort of filming it. And miraculously, some of this footage is good enough that we can use. So we, we bring him back to the office and in interviewing him, I could tell he sort of his patience really wasn't there. He didn't really want to indulge us too much, but it was challenging. But we wanted to hear about Tobruk, El Alamein, and then was posted back to New Guinea. And um, I mean, the video is there that tells the story. Oh, yes. And when sometimes his responses were very colourful, detailing struggles of, well, how do you go to the bathroom in the trenches of Tobruk when the German snipers are waiting to get you? And the technique is an empty um, tin can of peaches. Uh, but then he would also would ask him another question and he would just go, no. He was very stern <laughs> and uh, not being used to being interviewed, which I think is typical of almost all of them that we spoke to, that they hadn't told the story before or not beyond family because they weren't seeking self-glorification or ego. They were being finally telling it because they're in their later years and are being asked to and for a greater purpose than just sharing their own life, but they're speaking on behalf of their former comrades as well. So we get through that interview with Ted, which I do recognise There's a great story here. We'll just see what these others are like. Three weeks later or so, you're back from the Philippines. The next bloke we chat with is Barney Greytrax, which listeners of this podcast will be very familiar with that name by now. But we film this World War II veteran, bomb aimer on the Lancaster bomber of Bomber Command, shot down on his 20th mission lands on the German side of the French-German border, crosses over, joins the French resistance, fights with them for eight months before being liberated. And you and I are there, your friend from school, who's a television producer, Matt Clark is there, and we're recording this amazing story. Just go, oh my God, we are <laughs> onto something here. And then the stories roll out after that. We get a good mix of Navy, Army, Air Force with all 12. John Reed, John Horden, Phil Stevenson, John Hall Lacey, Eric Thew, Ted Carter, Richard Miles, who did not want to be interviewed, but when a 12th person pulled out, he was the replacement we insisted upon, so he reluctantly joined. David Nesbitt, Lyle Roberts, Arthur Party, Barney Greatrex, Don Corbell-Smith. So we have these 12 amazing interviews, and these stories form this collection. The original vision wasn't clear. We just knew we had to get these stories recorded. That was the imperative. Then we look at this collection as it's starting to build and go, well, there's this weaving thread of 
common experiences, little things like John Reed is shipping supplies to Tobruk where Ted Carter is. Your father and Phil Stevenson serve on the same ship under the same captain at different points. There's these interesting overlaps and they're just 12 remarkable stories. And we think, okay, we have to make this a bit bigger. And you've been at the Philippines and done some photography and we're starting to think, how else can we make this? Okay, let's make this a documentary. So our vision grows enormously and we'll come back to the other parts that we had to put into that production like music and other location shoots. But a very important part of expanding this vision was expanding the team because I just started full-time work. You were ongoing with full-time work and expanding your business. It was becoming beyond our means and I'm owning an amateur filmmaker by passion. I wouldn't even describe myself as a filmmaker. I just enjoy doing it and had rudimentary understandings. I wanted to expand the team with guys that knew what they were doing, guys who had a love for history and just reinforcements because we desperately needed them. So we went back to Knox and we got recommended by a couple of different old teachers of mine, two lovely individuals whom we both spoke with and we couldn't pick between them. So welcome to Thistle Productions in 2012, Tom and Rohan. At the time I was studying TV production in Wagga and in the middle of a production shoot, um, I get a, uh, things go under wraps and then um, just have a five minute break or so and the phone rings. Timing was perfect. And uh, turns out it was John Diamond on the phone just um, giving me a call about this project. And he went on to tell me about what it was, who was involved and about this incredible documentary that was being put together with the stories of former Knox men who served through the war. And I just went, uh, it amazed me at first mention. And I went, sure, I'd love to do it. it. I was as well a uni student with a bit of free time and thought it would be a great way to spend that free time and actually do something that uh, is for a good cause. My generation, so my brothers and I, we're the only generation at the moment that haven't had any done any service with the Australian Army, as far as I know, from as far back as I can look. But it was something that I thought I could be proud of and you know um, remember them from. And then um, while on my third date with my now fiance. Um, I gave her the head up that uh, <laughs> Tom's engaged. Did you? Yeah. <laughs> Congratulations! Thank you. And uh, <laughs> I, I, she had the heads up that I, I was expecting a call at some point that day. And I was at the uh, botanical gardens in Wagga, just having a picnic. And um, then I get a call from Alex. Yeah, it's um, you know, was it the first time you were headhunted for a job? I don't know, but um, oh, we brought you to the office, had a chat. Your resume and skills were great. You were just what we needed. And we quickly got to work. Um, Angus and I had done, I think, 11 of the 12 uh, by that stage or 10 of the 12. So we had most of the material ready to go. So we start dividing up who's editing what pieces of the story. And looking back, I feel a bit guilty because there was a lot of, okay, here's a script scene by scene of you know this guy's story on this, then this guy's story on this. So I knew the structure, it should unfold, but... Didn't have much brief beyond that. It was, okay, here's material, good luck, and send me some stuff and I'll give you feedback and hopefully what you do and Rohan does and I do all kind of matches up, which by and large it did. Then it's just, what, a lot of hours behind the computer of working, isn't it? Hours and, and hours and hours. Mm. It, was, it was probably, it, it felt like hundreds of hours of material, 
but all incredible stories. It definitely was a labor of love though. And something that we all enjoyed putting together and all different incredible stories. And to further add to your labor of love, I gave you another assignment because it was beyond my capabilities. And anyone who's seen the documentary that we have these wonderful animated map, I basically envisioned Game of Thrones style credits, but a bit more appropriate to the subject matter. We were darting from place to place in where the guy's ship is moving, animations of where in the sky Barney's plane is shot down. I remember going to you with the question, so how are you with animation? I had a basic um, level of skill with animation, doing a few things on uni projects, but nothing to a grand scale like this. The main way, it was a lot of trial and error and trial and error. There'd be dozens of different makes that somehow letters of different locations would go missing and or they'd somehow submerge within the map and it'd be like, ah, oh, how would you miss that? And then, you know, um, different things like that. But it was something that I couldn't be prouder to de dedicate my time to. It was a lot of thorough checking. Why is the K in Tobruk missing? I know that's not a typo. And Rohan, it was the same deal for both of us as well, I think, just hundreds of hours back and forth, back and forth. Yeah. And you were the editor on episode three, which is the one that features Barney Greatrex, the heaviest. And while mm. Barney's story is one I'm so attached to, to interview him was quite difficult because since childhood, and we believe exacerbated first by war and now by age, he has quite a stutter. So... I knew when filming this, once I sort of got over the incredible story, I was being told, oh, this is going to be um, interesting to translate to camera. So we had to do a bit of work there with Barney. Mm. Yeah, we did. Um, when you came to me with the raw footage, I um, when we watched over it, I was like, yeah, this, this stutter is pretty, pretty heavy. And then uh, I think I actually didn't even believe you fully when you started saying, yeah, we've got we to cut out all, every, every stutter that happens. So we... Uh, Inched, Which we didn't quite achieve. Inched but. forwards uh, second by second through a lot of material until we finally got to a, a serviceable product, which was, that was probably for me the most grueling part of the editing process, but also the most um, enlightening because I, I learned the finer details of Barney's story. I've been reading his book and that's even more. Um, it goes to a level we couldn't possibly cover and yeah. or conceive of. And I, yeah, I do remember sort of sitting there watching you make judgment calls. That stutter is pretty short. That's okay. Oh, that one, oh, okay, we mm, need to cut that micro one. Micromanaging, <laughs> micromanaging <laughs> microseconds. And then, yeah, finding the right overlays. And you did some other creative work at the start as well where you cut together, I think it was a Ted Carter to Brooks scene, some really nice, and it was heavily stylized, and we paired it back a bit for the final product. But in terms yeah, of yeah. Um, concept work on image overlays and how we can intercut with music and such more because we had no music at that point either it was just footage yeah, so that yeah. um, gave us a good sort of template to go forward with okay let's apply these principles and um, find the right balance with the actual music we have but it was a good conceptual work that you gave us that i thought was quite yeah useful yeah i thought i'd yeah sort of um play around with um the setting and um the audio visual elements of it Probably too cinematic for what we were going for, I remember. But um, I think it was a good exercise to just trial out a few techniques. And, it was um, cool. It was cool. <laughs> <laughs> I did. I was pretty happy with it. Um, that's part of the process. That's part of the refining process. And it's it's not sexy to talk about. It's just hundreds of hours sitting behind a computer. Yeah, it's, it's wet. But Angus came up with um, quite a cool idea. I'd gone to uh, some of my friends saying, hey, you play guitar. Can you record a track for us? And I've 
went to my friend Dan Van Werkhoven, who is a composer, and he composed our wonderful opening credits theme and some other music, and he's done this podcast theme for us as well. And so he did some great stuff for us, but we just still didn't have enough quantity of music. We only had six tracks or something, which is not enough to sustain a five-episode, each episode, 45, 50 minutes documentary. So we're still struggling. Where are we going to fill this? I don't know how we're going to make this more colourful. And Angus had a very ambitious idea, which I just dismissed as, no, that's not going to work. They won't say yes to that. But Angus, do you want to recount Swee in the choir? The music story is a beautiful story. Um, And it goes back to, we just interviewed Barney in 2011. And my son had learned to play the clarinet at school and he's been practicing at home. He's still playing it beautifully. And he's um, playing at home the uh, track from The Great Escape. I'm hearing this beautiful Great Escape music and, and it's a wonderful movie and everyone who's seen it, you know, just know it as an absolute classic. And I'm just thinking, well, we've just interviewed Barney and he has this most amazing Great Escape story and here are these Knox boys that are playing the Great Escape music. Why don't we get the Knox boys to play for the Knox production? We'd met Mr Bryce, James Bryce, who's the director of music in the senior school. He's ex-military himself, ex-Air Force. Really? Yeah, you, you, you just Should can't. we get him on the podcast? Yeah. You can't just well, um, awesome. appreciate how good this man is. Talk <laughs> about discipline, organised, hardworking, mm. passionate. He is he's an absolute inspiration. Yeah, he's, he's just outstanding. And he just loved it. He was military. He understood the importance of the service. He said, we will do this. They started creating this beautiful music, which is played throughout the production. And they're just wonderful pieces. Seven tracks of it, including they bring the choir in as well, Abide With Me, Band of Brothers, The Great Escape, the hymn from Saving Private Ryan. There's so much great stuff in there that we're so grateful they contributed that to the production. It really made it. And I managed to fill all the space I needed with music in the editing, thanks to that. Mm -hmm. And then... We keep expanding the vision. There's a lot of filming done in a variety of other places. And one of the most notable ones, Angus, you go to Gallipoli. I was overseas and I was able to go via Constantinople. And then, of course, if you're in Constantinople, you must go to Gallipoli. So I went to Gallipoli and I took footage of Pluggy's Plateau, the hill, which if you go to Gallipoli, it's this massive barren hill that you've got to climb. And... You know, you move to tears, and that's why everyone who goes to Gallipoli gets it. And again, I was using the same camera that I used with Ted Carter, that I was just filming the waves lapping at the shore. Well, with this podcast, I've been jumping up and down the east coast of Australia for recording as many interviews as I can. But for the documentary, you and I only went as far as the Southern Highlands, Angus, for Phil Stevenson and John Hall Lacey. But you were doing a lot of running around. And uh, some of the earliest running around was with Tom. We were blessed in that um, I've known Dr. Brendan Nelson for quite some time. He and I shared car spaces in the same building where my office is. I contacted him and he kindly opened doors for us. And, and his contribution to all of this project has been nothing short of outstanding. I mean, the guy is just brilliant. Uh, His Churchillian quality address, you have to listen to in the DVD. But we meet down in in Canberra, we go to the War Memorial, and we're running around with the footage. And do you remember how I was sort of... Anyway, you tell the story, mate. Yeah. Well, every time I've been um, to the War Memorial, I'd never really thought of behind the scenes. We were essentially handed the keys to the kingdom. We could go anywhere and everywhere we were guided throughout the museum we were shown this that everything else and 
given as much freedom as we needed to get all the material we could use. And it was kind of a surreal experience as well, going in and seeing all these different artifacts, paintings and different pieces of history that were at our disposal to shoot the hell out of it. Our main goal was just to get the material we needed. We got in there early um, before anyone else could, but um, we also had a uh, interesting encounter when a school group decided to come in into the uh, museum at the same time, just as we were about to get some shots that we needed. Yeah, I, I recall that I actually redirected them to another room at the time. Yes. But, but that we were doesn't sound like you, Angus. But, but, but we Did were you tell them to be quiet as well? <laughs> <laughs> anyway, they, they, they found another room to look at. Yeah. Um, but we're, again, Dr. Carl James, who took us in at 9 yeah. o'clock before it opened at 10. And, and I remember, and we hadn't done much shooting, you know, of, of footage together. And I knew we had limited time, you know, before school groups, et cetera, came in. So I remember just dragging you saying, oh, yes, here's the Tobruk footage. This is Ted Carter. You must get this diorama. And then we went round to the Tarakan one where John Hall Lacey was involved. And then we, we kept walking around in the World War II section and just seeing shots that related to our story. And as you said, you just kept, I kept pushing you. You just kept filming it. And then, you know, the, the wonderful footage. And, and then, of course, it goes back into the back room for you guys to all work on. And and then we did another shooting experience where at last we were able to get Dr. Brendan Nelson free for the interview. And I'd been tracking him in Canberra and Sydney and he had flown in and he had to do a speech at the Union Club and Alex was at work and you fortunately were in Sydney. And I lined him up so he landed at something like at four. I met him at six and then he met all the Union Club people at 7.30 or something. Yeah, I... I... Remember, it was straight after an internship. I lugged all my gear to work and then lugged on the train into the city. And initially, I didn't have any idea where I was going. So I rocked up, found Angus, thankfully, and then walked into this building that everyone's really dressed up. We wait for a little while in the lobby and then get taken up to this room, which conveniently named the Red Room. Every single wall in there was red. So we get in there and uh, we... It made the lighting for photography a little interesting. It, yeah. it did. We... Uh, we decided playing around with the shutters, moving the lamps, yeah. um, trying to reposition things to try and get as much colour in there as possible. Yeah, the guys didn't like that, I remember. Yeah, <laughs> trying to lift the colour. And uh, we had a little bit what, a little bit of time to set everything up. And You operated uh, three cameras that day. Yeah. yeah, to be fair, it needed a little time. <laughs> three arms. <laughs> um, and thankfully had a quick rest to uh, sort of cool down. And then I'd never met... Dr. Brennan Nelson before. So this is the first time I've mm. ever met him. And I knew him as a politician beforehand and then director of the Australian War Memorial. And then hear the knock on the door and the assistant introduces him and he walks in the room. Obviously, most of the time you see politicians on camera, they're not who you'd think they'd be in person. But it was like there were no shields up, there were no political anything, this, that. It was basically what you see is what you get. He was the most layback, welcoming gentleman yeah. that um, who showed an interest in every single person who would be there. So he spoke to myself, he spoke to you. He um, really opened his arms basically to this production and anything we threw at him and was quite emotional as well. He was just brilliant. And then I had the great pleasure from these two excursions of yours going through all your war memorial footage 
that was a lot and uh i think we only missed the welcome mat that was it yeah we, and <laughs> i filmed everything and yeah. your interviews with carl james brendan o'keefe and the full clip with brendan nelson and you also got my second favorite shot in the documentary that pan of the wall of poppies mm. at the war memorial yeah, i love that shot which wall, is, yeah. which is one of our i think it's the opening shot in our credit mm. sequence and i love that and the person who filmed my favorite shot was uh rohan we're at knox for an anzac day service and we had a few of our veterans there and so we've filmed the service and we're filming them we're thinking i'll oh, we'll film them interacting or something can you recount that shot for us rohan something unplanned and unexpected I remember it was quite a cold morning, so my fingers were quite stiff. So I was operating the camera um, throughout the service. Uh, and then it, it wrapped up and then the uh, the veterans were grouped together and they were standing still and talking. And then they and then they started moving towards the cenotaph at the top of the ground. I had my camera on, but I wasn't recording. And then I happened to be behind them and then they were, and they were sort of walking up. And then um, I started recording and thought, oh, let's see what I can do here. And then I got a sort of pan up mid shot of uh, starting from the feet and revealing these men of war uh, walking to a commemorative cenotaph with the morning sun kind of spilling out over onto the grass over them. And then the documentary is finally finished. As I recall, we watched the rough cut and then the next day I was flying to Europe. So we watched the rough cut all day here. John Diamond came along to watch that as well. We spent the last six months hurriedly editing, getting all the finessing done, uh, lower thirds and everything else, and getting the maps right and overlays and everything. And then the documentary, we finally have it ready, and then it's ready to premiere at the school. The school can't play a five-part miniseries on a school day to the entire school. They <laughs> apparently don't want to spend a whole day of education. How oh, dare they? Come on. Exactly. <laughs> so I quickly rushed together a presentation edition, 45 minutes of best of the beginning, one story from each veteran, best of the ending. And I must say, it is excellent how that whole miniseries was condensed into that was just an excellent production. It wasn't easy, but we did that. We had this fantastic day, wonderful music, uh, a lovely VIP keynote address by Dr. Brendan Nelson, had the screening. And I would like each of us just quickly to share a memory from that day. Angus, your memory walking in. The headmaster turned to me and said, um, how do you want to do this? And I said to John, look, you go, you lead. So he walks in with the official party and I said to Alex, you and I, hang back, we'll be last. And as we walked through, do you remember I grabbed you by the arm, mate, and I looked you in the eye and I said, remember this, you will never experience this again in your life. We walk in and, and as we've said before, there's this sea of blue of this assembly hall full of boys with their blue jackets. We walk past the honour guard and we walk into this assembly hall and just as a background the school has never done a function like this before we'll never do another function by point of the veterans ever again like this and it's one of those top days in your life i'll always remember the 5th of may 2015 i'll never forget it it's one of my top days and i remember we we got through and then right at the front all the veterans who are in wheelchairs stopped because they couldn't get them into chairs so i remember how <laughs> We were walking through gracefully and thought, oh, gosh. The prefects couldn't quite work out how to sit them down or just, just put the chairs Logistics. next to the other chairs. <laughs> um, yeah, it was a very emotional entrance. I distinctly remember walking in with you and it mm. was this massive, massive function. Rohan, can you share your memories of before the actual screening started, 
The band and the choir played Abide With Me to give a live performance before the screening. Do you remember the emotion in that room? Mm, yeah, I do. That was quite palpable. Uh, I love music and especially what Mr. Bryce has done with um, yes. his leadership. Some of the pieces I've heard him conduct in my final year uh, had a big impact on me. So hearing him again uh, with the orchestra um, was something I realised that I sort of missed as well as I was at uni at, at that stage. I think I was subconsciously missing the, the discipline and the brotherhood of Knox. And that day was homecoming for me and uh, I think for all of us as well. Absolutely. And the applause at the end lasted throughout the entire end credits, which was an achievement. And it was it went on and, and on and on and on. And yeah. an absolute never, silence. Never heard that before. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. In an assembly. And the silence. <laughs> During. Like, yeah. yeah. My son said to me, Dad, I don't think the boy's going to sit through it. And Alex, did you hear anyone make a noise? Not a pin. Mm. No, you could have heard the proverbial pin drop and the photos that came out afterwards by the photographers showed this absolute rapture and interest and attention and some misty-eyed students even, which was very rewarding. There was a tear rolling down the eye of one of the senior CEOs yeah. that the photographer took. Brilliant photo. And these are big, burly boys. Everyone was moved. There wasn't a dry eye of the whole assembly. Then, gotcha. then the students are dismissed to go back to class and uh, the smaller party of the veterans, friends, family and other dignitaries, we get to go and have a nice lunch function at the school afterwards to celebrate. And Angus, you and I make an address. Uh, Brendan Nelson makes one and Mr Weeks does a very glowing one, which is all lovely. Uh, Tom, can you recount the atmosphere and celebrations at that lunch function afterwards? Basically, it was, a, it was an entire surreal experience. There was no way I was going to miss it. I ended up doing the 2 a.m. shift at work and then coming in straight afterwards. and uh, <laughs> The life of a TV man. <laughs> yes, um, in the suit and all. And I rocked up and I wasn't sure what to expect. So we had the assembly. We walked in and that was breathtaking. Walking in there with the sea of blue and khaki and everyone in their uniforms. And then we get to this function afterwards where we have a few keynote speakers and all the different tables had the veterans seated on them with their families and different people who had parts in the project and things like that. We had the address um, from the headmaster at the time, John Weeks, and it was it's something that won't easily be forgotten at all. It's something that will stick in the back of my memory forever. To sign up to a project like this, you get given everything, it's in its raw form, all the uncut footage, everything like that. You never expect really what the end product's going to be. It's very raw, very rough yeah. stuff. And kind of you think that, okay, great, we'll just whack this together and it'll be just... Angus yeah, thought we'd do it in right. six months. It'll just be easy, don't worry. Yeah, <laughs> yeah not, not a problem at all. I really but did. We hope by Christmas. It, it, it felt like it almost moved the moon effectively mm. with the scale of how things had changed from the signing up to this project to being in that, that hall then sharing lunch with these veterans mm. after watching back this 45-minute cut-down version of the project, and it was incredible. I remember it all vividly, and if I hear the track Aces High being played anywhere, I'm transported <laughs> back to walking into the Great Hall that day. I can't disassociate it. One of the most lasting memories is after all the speeches were done, I brought in all these finely produced DVDs, professionally 
burnt and produced and all that. And Angus and I went around to each table and anyone who'd been interviewed or other contributions was getting one. And most importantly, of course, the veterans were getting copies. And so we went to each table to officially present each veteran with their collection of copies. And just seeing the absolute warmth and emotion and sincerity on their faces, just trying to communicate how much this meant to them because they'd all just sat through this remarkable experience in the Great Hall. And I don't mean remarkable because of our work, just the sort of culmination of all these factors of the student interest and the emotion and everything. Having that gratitude of what we have done is important. And we're not extraordinarily talented or anything like that. We're just the ones who did it, is what I come down to. And doing this podcast, someone occasionally asks me, but who are you guys? Why, um, you know, why are you the ones to be doing it? And my response is, well, we're the only veterans no, podcast focusing yeah. on Australia. We're the ones doing it. That's the yes, answer. Yes. So why not? Exactly. Mm. Why not? And it came back to that for me as well, that we had done this and the opportunity for anyone else was there, but we'd done it. And I had that immense pride for being part of this team and getting that done. And that spurned a passion in all of us to keep doing this stuff. Angus, you and I took the story of Barney Great Treks to Hachette Australia Books and teamed up with best-selling author Michael Veach. And September last year, Barney's biography came out, 97-year-old Barney there to celebrate the launch of the book. It's this most emotional, wonderful day. A smaller function back at school compared to 2015, but a more intimate and rewarding in another way in that his book is out there across Australia. It's been sold digitally in various European countries. It's been sold in print in the United Kingdom. It's wonderful to have his story out there so widely. And of course, March 2017, we're still discussing, well, what can we do next? I don't know. And we come up with a podcast. That sounds like a good idea. Editing audio is easier than editing video, right? Mm. <laughs> it is, but that one thing leads to another and here we are today. So I wanted to have this chat with all of you because reminiscing is always fun. Three years on, feeling a bit nostalgic, but for all the projects we've done to date and many we might do in the future, it started with For School and Country. And although that's the most local community-based project, it's a bit knock-centric compared to these other wider stories we're telling now, it's always going to hold a very special place in my heart for that. So Rohan, Tom, thank you for coming on and helping us finish what we started. And Angus, thanks for uh, bringing me on and having the vision. And Alex, Rohan and Tom, as I say again, thank you to you. You're all unpaid. You are passionate and loyal and professional about this. We just started interviewing these people and really it dawned on us that it wasn't a six month exercise, that Barney and all the other boys deserved to have their stories told as best we could. And to your credit, we all just jumped in and did our best and as a team, we produced a wonderful product and we continue to and, and it's lovely that we're here together again today and we'll keep doing these wonderful stories. Thank you for reaching out and finding us because it's not an opportunity that will readily come by anyone. It just happened to be the right place, right time, and not something that will be easily forgotten. It's something that will remain with me for the rest of my life and something I couldn't be happier with. Yes, it's been a privilege. School for Country will always be close to my heart as well. Um, I've always been interested in serving my country uh, myself, hearing the stories of men that had gone to my school and had devoted themselves to a higher ideal um, and put themselves at risk for the sake of their country is um, something that is very precious and very important and must be defended. Hear, hear. Thank you, the original Thistle Productions crew. 
That was myself, Angus Horden, Thomas Kay, and Rohan Viswalingam reminiscing on our original veterans project, For School and Country. Find out more about the documentary at forschoolandcountry.com. We also have a Facebook page. Just search For School and Country. Follow our podcast on Facebook as well, Life on the Line Podcast, which is also how we're known on Instagram. You can follow us on Twitter at LOTLpod. Just for today, instead of our usual outro music, you'll hear the audio from the documentary's theatrical trailer. You can watch the trailer on the Thistle Productions Vimeo page, vimeo.com slash thistleproductions. We'll also post it on our social media channels. Music credits are listed in the video description. Life on the Line is brought to you by Thistle Productions. Artwork by Big Cat Design. Music by Dan Van Werkhoven. Thanks for listening. And lest we forget... Australian who had a life, who was loved and loved others and then when the time came and his country called, he answered that call voluntarily and then in the service of our country, wearing the uniform of our nation under our flag, he gave his life for us. As far as I'm concerned, they were the unsung heroes of World War II. Courage and determination in the face of often impossible odds. You don't know what the Japanese are going to do. You're not really sure what their intentions will be. So we need to protect you know, our vast continent. In my opinion, this is the finest generation this country has ever produced. They lost brothers and classmates, and the conflict changed them forever. We remember and thank them all. They were enemy. They were there to be, they to be shot and got rid of. Pointed out the window where you could see nothing but rubble as far as the eye could see. You wouldn't believe that anybody could have got out of that at all. If it was a massive wrecked aircraft, everything was a, was a shambles. Engine on the starboard side had caught fire. You really sort of had your heart in your mouth and you prayed hard. <laughs>